And we're recording. What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. Welcome back. It is Tuesday as I'm recording this, so I'm definitely cutting it close to our midnight on Wednesday deadline, but hey, life has been really crazy for me, and yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I just want to thank you guys for sticking with me, riding the waves of life with me, consistently tuning in every single week. Um, Please remember to rate this podcast the highest rating that you can on any platform that you listen to. It really helps get the podcast some visibility. It starts recommending it to people. Share this podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ProfSkepPodcast. That's P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P Podcast. I'm not quite as active on Twitter. I'm not really good at Twitter. So any advice that you guys might have there is super helpful to me. Also today, I got in the mail some professional skepticism stickers. I'm really excited about them. They came out beautifully. I think I'm going to be selling them, and if you're lucky, I might just give you one. But I'm going to be putting them everywhere, sticking them literally everywhere. I'm going to have them on me at all times. I'm so excited about that. And what else is going on? I've got some guests coming on here in the next couple of weeks. I've had a lot of people reach out to me saying that they want to be on the podcast, so if you would like to, you can definitely send me episode recommendations, and if not, I can come up with some and we can pick one to talk about together. So I'm going to just go ahead and dive right into this week's episode. I did some thorough research on this at like two in the morning after I drank a pot of coffee, and I have a lot of thoughts about this one, and it's just super interesting. So we'll go ahead and dive in. Today's topic is Pharma Bro Martin Shkreli, Shkreli, however you want to say it. There's an H in there. You guys might remember him. Maybe you don't. Um, I'm super excited to cover this one. The first big thing that I watched was the Pharma Bro documentary on Hulu, and it has mixed reviews, and I have mixed feelings about it myself, but I did get a good bit of information from there. And as I was watching it, I was like, this is so weird. The guy who created the movie, which I can't think of his name right now, I'm blanking, but I'll have it all in my show notes. He he was obsessed with him, basically. He was just so intrigued by Martin Shkreli. He actually moved into the same apartment complex as Martin Shkreli. He was like, this is going to get me as close to him as possible so I can really do, like, the best journalist work that I can. And, like, to that extent, I'm like, yeah, I get what you're saying. But also, I was like, why are you obsessed with this guy? Like, that's so fucking weird. And then I was like, why am I obsessed with this guy? Like, this is literally what my podcast is about. I just obsess over people who have and live different lives than I do. And so I'm really not that different from him, but I am different in the sense that I don't think I would move into someone's apartment building just to get closer to them and then admit it to like the whole world. But hey, to each their own. So who is Martin Shkreli? 
Martin Shkreli was born in Coney Island Hospital, which I usually don't have their hospital location, so that's a new one for me, in Brooklyn, New York, on March 17th, 1983, so that makes him a Pisces man, and we all know and love, question mark, a Pisces man. They're very sensitive and very elusive, and we'll see some of that throughout this episode. His parents were Roman Catholics, and according to Wikipedia, Martin said that his religion has been a guiding post for him, although he does not believe in God. Martin, his brother, and two sisters were the children of two immigrants who came to the United States from Albania and worked as janitors, and they still work as janitors to this day. His family lived in a rent-controlled two-bedroom apartment and had four kids, so that seems like a lot. And he said that now that he's become successful, his parents have actually refused to, well, successful. He's in, he's in jail, spoiler alert. <laughs> but when he got successful, his parents refused to let him buy them a house after he, you know, had the financial security to do that. They were like, no, we don't want it. So they were very modest and humble, not anything like Martin. I'm five minutes into the podcast episode and I already had to take off my sweatshirt because, again, I wore a sweatshirt and I have on, like, fuzzy slippers and sweatpants in my closet. And after last episode, you guys know that it's pretty hot in here, so I'm feeling a lot better now. So let's get back to Martin. Rumors speculate whether Martin actually graduated from high school or whether he was expelled before his senior year, and I got that on Wikipedia, so, like, maybe some asshole went in there and was like, fuck Martin Shkreli, he didn't graduate, blah, blah, blah. Either he, like, got expelled and whatever and finished his credits alternatively, or he just finished school and people are just saying that, but this differs on the source. The Hulu documentary, or I guess it's, I don't know if it, I guess it's a documentary. Um, they have like a clip of him saying that he went to City College in New York. Regardless, he somehow finished his credits because he did end up going to college. In an interview with Vice, Martin said that he was always interested in the stock market, even from a very young age, and that he was often bullied for it, which I can understand. Not that like I would bully someone for being into the stock market, but I can see why like we always make fun of like crypto nerds and stuff. By 17 years old, Martin had landed an internship at Wall Street hedge fund Kramer, Berkowitz, and Company. He later obtained a bachelor's degree in business administration, same, but mine has a focus in accounting, and he got this from Baruch College in 2004. So regardless, he somehow was able to get into college. You can't do that without some sort of high school credits, so I don't really know why that's like a speculation people are making. Wikipedia states that Shkreli told Vanity Fair he became interested in chemistry when a family member suffered from treatment-resistant depression. So that's really sad. And then this is where his entrance into the world of big pharma came into play. He's got the hedge fund executive mindset with an interest in medicine, which is one of the most profitable combinations here in the United States, unfortunately. According to the New York Times, Mr. Shkreli was an indifferent student in high school and studied business in college, like I said, yet almost anyone who knows him will remark on his ability to practically memorize medical journals and textbooks, accumulating an encyclopedic knowledge of drugs and diseases that interest him. So this bears similarity to 
Elizabeth Holmes, which I keep talking about in all my episodes because I'm just enamored by her weird-ass personality and, like, everything that she was able to do. That is actually going to be episode 26 and 27 because I'm a crackhead and I, like, just sat down and planned out all my episodes through June. I just, I want to wait for that trial to be done, or her her trial's done, but Sunny Balwani's trial is not done, I believe, and I want to have all the information for you guys, but she was similar in that she didn't really have the knowledge to be doing what she was doing. And in this situation, he, Martin didn't need the knowledge. He was just doing like the business side of things, but he was interested in chemistry and medicine and all that good stuff. So I want to set the tone of this episode by telling you what Martin did. And well, he did a lot of things. I'm going to tell you what really pissed people off the most. And it's not even what he went to jail for. He does end up like having to take care of some stuff because of what he did, but this isn't the thing that got him incarcerated. Martin Shkreli raised the price of an orphan drug called Daraprim by more than 5,000% overnight. Daraprim is used to treat the parasitic diseases toxoplasmosis and cystosopariasis and is most commonly used by people who have HIV, cancer, or are pregnant. The drug was originally $13.50 per pill before he raised it to $750 a pill. In an interview, Martin actually said if he could go back in time, he probably would have raised the price higher. Now, that's a lot to unpack right there, and I want to start with talking a little bit about the medication and the pharmaceutical industry just to kind of give us that foundational knowledge so we can understand where he was coming from in some sort of sick and twisted way. I, on this show, I don't like to always necessarily pick a side, and I feel like this episode is one of those ones where you can really play devil's advocate, so I'm going to lay it down for you guys. I'm going to lay it down. The pharmaceutical industry. Orphan drugs, that might have caught your attention. I hadn't, I didn't know what that term was, so I'm going to explain it for you guys. Orphan drugs are drugs that typically treat diseases that are extremely rare. And that by that, that means the people who are afflicted by these diseases are less than 200,000 worldwide. So there's not a lot of people that are dealing with this. There's not a lot of people that need this drug. But that's still 200,000 people that could need this drug. So that's still humans that we need to take care of. Therefore, this is not really a huge market for pharmaceutical companies. There's not a huge desire to produce these drugs for such a small group of patients because it's not profitable. Like, I don't know how else to say it. It's just not profitable. There's not an economic way to go about it. So pharmaceutical companies used to not make these medications because it wasn't profitable. Like, they just didn't make them. So it was incredibly difficult to find manufacturers of these medications. In 1983, the Orphan Drug Act was passed to create tax incentives for companies to make them for people who needed them. Like, okay, thank you. Like, (laughs) we need those fucking medications, even if it is just a couple people, even if it's just one person. Capitalism. Then the companies, after this act was passed, they have to make these drugs. Or I guess they don't technically have to, but they get a tax incentive. So the companies charge a huge price so that they can make it profitable and worth their while, and they're also receiving a tax cut. Dr. Aaron Kesselheim, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, says, 
and I quote, A drug that is off-patent is only inexpensive if there is sufficient competition. If there isn't, older drugs can have higher prices just like new drugs. End quote. So companies would go out, find these obscure orphan drugs, buy the patents, and then flip the prices to be super high, and then, like, rake in on the tax cuts. I don't really know how much they were getting in tax cuts, so I don't know if it was, like, super great, but I feel like if they needed to, like, go to all this trouble to do it, it it was at least worth their while. So back in the early 2000s, tons of companies did huge price increases of orphan drugs. The majority of people didn't really care or defend people who needed orphan drugs because a lot of people were not even aware of this issue since so few people actually needed the drug. So they were basically, like, all these companies were taking advantage of these people and there was no one there to defend them. Or if there were, there just wasn't a big enough splash to get the attention or make the change necessary. Imagine 200,000 people could be anywhere in the world. I mean, I live in the Charlotte area and we have a million people in just the Charlotte city limits and then the greater Charlotte area is even more. So you don't know where all those people are. So they could just be all over like little mini protests, people sending in letters. It's not making a big enough grassroots kind of movement for people to take notice of it, which is really sad. But this became such a problem that around 2006 and 2007, it started to become more notable. I think I saw Hillary Clinton was doing some like press talks about it back then. And so people are starting to take notice of this kind of thing. And now it still happens, but people are more aware of it now. I think one of the popular ones that we all know about is the EpiPen going up super high. And that one, more people use that. So I think that was why. And insulin. I mean, those aren't even orphan drugs, really. Those are pretty common. So I think with all of that, we're all much more aware than we used to be. So let's talk about Daraprim specifically. Daraprim is the brand name of a drug called pyrimethamine, an antibiotic that was approved by the FDA over 50 years ago to treat an infection called, like I said, toxoplasmosis. Toxoplasmosis is a serious and sometimes fatal infection caused by the Toxoplasma gondii parasite, one of the most common parasites in the world. While many people in the U.S. may carry this parasite, only a small number will develop active infection. And I got that from the actual Daraprim website. And this goes back to what I was talking about on the episode of Around the Bar that I did with Caleb and Anna, which was super fun. But we talked about parasites because apparently other countries in this world are commonly taking, what what would be the word, like, de-parasite medications? <laughs> um, dewormers, that's what it is. I was like, I know there's a word for it. So people take dewormers and like we don't do that here in the US. And so we just have tummy problems and just little things living inside of us. And like most of us walk around fine, but people with compromised immune systems are much more susceptible to the negative effects of having these parasites. So maybe I might, I think I was talking about this in that episode, I might try some of those dewormers and see what happens. But I was like, holy shit, like, this is so casual. They're like, oh yeah, like many people have this parasite, but only some of us will get infected. Like I don't feel like that's normal, but maybe it is. This parasite can cause a serious brain disease that can possibly lead to death in people with weakened immune systems, such as those living with HIV and AIDS, infections in the eye that can lead to blindness, 
miscarriage or stillbirth in women that are pregnant, developmental abnormalities and or birth defects in babies as a result of exposure to the parasite before they are born. I feel like I sound a little stuffy. It's allergy season here, so I'm really trying to enunciate. Sorry, guys. I can't catch a break over here with my sinuses. Toxoplasmosis is relatively easy to fight off if you have a regular healthy immune system, like I said, but for immunocompromised people who have like HIV or cancer, etc., it's life-threatening. So the drug isn't only for people with HIV, but most of the people who use it do suffer from HIV or some other um, immunocompromised situation. And I think this got a lot of notoriety in the public, and it was associated a lot with particularly people who have HIV. So I just wanted to clear that up because it wasn't it wasn't necessarily an HIV medication. Like not every person who has HIV is taking Daraprim, but a lot of people who take Daraprim have HIV. Correlation does not mean causation. According to the New York Times, Daraprim is so old that it no longer had patent protection. A generic company could sell a lower-priced copy, but revenues from the drug were so small until now, and by until now that means until Martin decided to flip the prices and actually make a profit on it. Until now, that no generic company was interested, and it would take a few years for one to get regulatory approval. Moreover, at both Retrofin and Turing, which are Martin's companies that he had, Mr. Shkreli has tightly controlled distribution of the drugs, making it difficult for generic companies to obtain the samples they need for testing, which there are laws around that, so that is not good. Daraprim was selling for, for a while it was selling for like a dollar a pill, and then it got up to around thirteen fifty in 2013, 2014, and then Turing, Martin's company, bought it in 2015 and made it $750 a tablet. And the price increase is technically not illegal. So that's something that, as I was reading through all of this, watching that documentary and researching for this episode, everyone just kept you know, really honing in on that. We've created a market, and I don't have to tell you guys, we know how terrible our healthcare system is, but we've created a market where this is okay. This is legal for people to be able to hike up prices on medications like this. And we'll get into like his reasoning as to why he did it. And I'll talk to you about his companies and how it got to this point. I just, it's, it's fucked up for lack of a better term. (laughs) When the price increased, Daraprim patient Patrick Rice, in particular, would have had to pay $30,000 a month for his prescription, his monthly prescription. So he was obviously without his medicine. He said that he had insurance, but that doesn't mean that you always have access to care, as most of us know, and his insurance wouldn't pay it. He, like, made a point in the documentary, and it was really sad, and he was like, obviously they can pay it, but, like, they don't, they're not going to just pay that on little old me. And I was like, that's so sad. Martin went on Reddit, and this is after everything's, like, blown up, and he started just kind of feeding into this whole villain vibe, but he goes on Reddit, and he's like, I'm gonna do an Ask Me Anything, which is very not CEO of a pharmaceutical company-esque of him, but he goes on. He's like, ask me anything, whatever, and people are, like, giving him all this shit. They're like, what if people can't afford this medication? Like, what are you gonna do about that? Even though it's a small group of people, people still need it. And he was like, if you contact Turing, we will give you free Daraprim. The only reason that we've done this is so that like insurance companies that will cover it will pay it. And then people that like their insurance won't cover it or they don't have insurance, we'll just give it to them for free. But he wants to make a profit on it so that he can do more research and cure more diseases, blah, 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 blah. And Patrick goes on there and he's like, this has not been my experience. My insurance won't pay for it. And they're like, cool, we'll send you some. 
They send him a 10-day supply for free, and, like, that was it. And luckily, I think he said he's not on it anymore, like, things are better for him, but a 10-day supply when he needs it for a whole month for however long is just kind of like a slap in the face. Patrick says that the narrative in the media about this became the hate of Martin instead of the patients that needed help. And so everyone was just focused on hating Martin and not getting justice for those patients that were being directly affected by the situation. This increase got the attention of the HIV Medicine Association, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, and Andy Pollack in the New York Times wrote about it, and a lot of people in the New York Times wrote about it, let me tell you. Hillary Clinton also tweeted about it as well. The saddest part about this is that a lot of patients didn't want to come forward against Martin publicly to, you know, call him out or make a stand for fear of exposing their HIV status because the stigma is very real. They talk about that in the documentary some. And also these people are pretty ill. Like if they're on Daraprim, they're not in a good place. They're in life-threatening conditions. So it's just all around not ideal. Let's talk about Martin and his companies. So before venturing into the world of pharmaceuticals, Martin worked as a hedge fund executive. And this is all a quote from the New York Times. Martin's first hedge fund, Aaliyah Capital, collapsed after a bad bet in 2007. I'm going to interject here. He was betting that the stock market would crash and he was just a year early. So like sucks to be Martin. After his hedge fund collapsed, He started a second one, MSMB Capital, which also lost millions, although he assured investors that it was making them lots of money. Trying to obtain more capital, Mr. Screlly told one investor in 2010 that MSMB Capital had assets of $35 million. In fact, it had $700. In February 2011, he made another bad bet, losing his investors' money and another $7 million he had effectively borrowed from Merrill Lynch. To settle with Merrill, he used his investors' money to pay the firm around $1.5 million, then liquidated his fund, telling investors they had doubled their money and that they could get cash or a combination of cash and shares in a new healthcare company, Retrofin, he had incorporated. He then started a third hedge fund, MSMB Healthcare, and based on his misrepresentations of his previous performance, induced 13 people to invest $5 million in it. And that was all from the New York Times. This shit pisses me off so much. It's like, why are you going to this trouble? Just tell them, like, they lost the money. Like, that's kind of the point when you invest money. Like, I mean, obviously you want it to go up, but, like, there's always risk involved. I don't I don't understand. And, like, why are you betting all this money? Makes me so mad. Like, just stop. Like, just stop doing that. It was around this time that he was also named in the Forbes 30 under 30 list which I'm pretty sure Elizabeth Holmes was also on. And I literally can't wait to do that episode. Why? Like, I feel like this is the era of like just lying your way to the top. It's so crazy. Like all these sociopaths are just getting away with shit. I don't know if he's a sociopath. I'm not a doctor, but I think Elizabeth Holmes is. In 2011, Martin started Retrofen. And according to the Wall Street Journal, Mr. Shkreli, who was widely scorned for raising drug prices, including those of the life-saving drug used to treat HIV and AIDS and other immunocompromised patients, had said the name Retrofen stood for Replace Dystrophin. He was moved after learning about a teenage boy who died from a rare muscular dystrophy condition. It was a rare genetic disease that causes progressive muscle degeneration and weakness and is caused by the absence of dystrophin, a protein involved in maintaining muscle integrity. So like, oh, he does have a heart. 
But what's crazy to me about that is like, this is a rare disease that this kid has. And then he's like, okay, let me like make shit difficult for people that have another rare condition, toxoplasmosis. Retrofin found a couple of obscure drugs, bought the patents, and increased their prices. Martin claimed that most people's insurance companies would pay for this, and if not, Retrofin would give them their medicine for free, yada, yada, yada. We've heard this before. For the people whose insurance would actually cover the medications, they would make a profit, and then they would use the profit to research other life-changing, groundbreaking medications and treatments. He thought of it as like rigging the capitalistic system, kind of like a capitalist Robin Hood of sorts. Then he gets kicked out of Retrofin for some questionable business dealings. So let's talk about that. According to the New York Times, as Mr. Screlly's Ponzi scheme began to collapse in 2013, referencing his hedge fund stuff, he and Evan Griebel, an accomplice, according to the indictment, used Retrofin's stock to pay back his investors even though the drug company had nothing to do with his hedge fund losses. When Retrofin's auditors questioned the legitimacy of those payments, Mr. Screlly and Mr. Giebel concocted a new scheme to settle with investors by having Retrofin enter into sham consulting agreements with them. So they were just like basically saying that these consulting agreements or sessions or whatever were occurring when they never did, and that was what they were saying the payments were for. In the end, the indictment alleges both Mr. Screlly and Mr. Griebel caused causes in air quotes, or not air quotes, real quotes, but I'm doing air quotes right now. You can't see it. They caused Retrofin to pay out more than $7.6 million in cash and stock to settle the claims with the investors. Retrofin has since moved to San Diego, changed their name to Travere, and is now working to bring to market in 2022 Sparsentan, which is under review to treat rare kidney diseases that disproportionately affect Black, Latino, and Asian patients, according to the Wall Street Journal. And they want nothing to do with him. Like, they absolutely do not like him. It seems like they've really, like, they, everyone who worked there believed in, like, the mission of, like, researching and finding out cures and treatments for these rare diseases. And they were, like, upset that Martin basically made a mock of it. So after he left Retrofin, he started his company Turing, which is where the ridiculous price gouging of Daraprim occurred. Also, I skipped a bullet point. In the documentary, they were trying to get someone to talk to them from Retrofan about Martin, and the secretary said that Martin is not welcome in the building. They all spit on him, which I was like, damn, girl. <laughs> um, as of November 2020, though, it does seem like all legal issues between Retrofan and Shkreli have been resolved. Also, side note, I saw this and I was like, this man, he can't ever like chill out. According to an article published by the New York Times in 2015, Mr. Screlly led a group of investors that acquired 70% of Calo Bios, a biotechnology company that days earlier had announced it would shut down because its drugs had failed in clinical trials and it was running out of cash. Mr. Screlly, who said he saw promise in one of the Calo Bios experimental drugs, was named chief executive, and several other Turing executives were also appointed to top posts at Calo Bios. While the two companies are being run separately, Mr. Screlly said on Thursday that Calabios was exploring opportunities with Turing. Shares of Calabios, which were selling for a dollar or two when Mr. Screlly bought them, are now above $30. So that was $30 in 2015. I didn't look to see what it's at now or if it's still a thing. But like all of this is going on around the same time. Obviously, there's something fishy going on here. I don't know if this is like some sort of insider trading or something, but I'm like, dude, can you just like, like if you're going to commit a crime, commit the crime and move on. Don't do any more crimes because now you're just looking super suspicious with all these companies. So now let's talk about Martin and some of his extracurricular activities. 
So at this point in the timeline, Dara Prim has already been raised to the ridiculous price and everyone's calling him the most hated man in America or the world. And I feel like a lot of the people that I talk about on this episode are coined that name at some point in time, but he also really fed into it. Like he did not give a single fuck and he just went with it and was like, yeah, I am. What about it? So he loves feeding into the villain vibe. He kind of reminds me almost of Donald Trump with like the way that he's like obsessed with Twitter and social media and just like saying shit to get people pissed off and like not logging off when he should probably just shut up and like not make things worse for himself. Like that was really what Martin was doing. I have my hair in like a little thing on the top of my head and my headphones are right on it. There we go. Pulled it out. Okay. Like I said, he's being crazy on the internet. He has these live chat rooms where he just records himself doing whatever he wants all day long. And sometimes he would let people join and like be on camera with him. But he would do this like every day. And his live stream is just the things that he's doing all day. People said it it could be very boring or it could be crazy. Like if someone got on and he would get into a fight with them. But it's basically just videos of him working on his computer, playing guitar, like sleeping in his bed, eating food. Just what you would do on a normal day. He put his phone number out there, and it's 646-217-2783. I don't know if that's still his phone number. He's in jail, so you can't really talk to him anyways. But he would put this number out on live streams, and then people would call him, and he would answer and just heckle them on live, basically. And he would also... Oh, I already said that. He let people join via webcam. I'll say it again. It's my podcast. So there was this one clip in the documentary where there was a black woman on his live with him, And he and her are like kind of going back and forth. And then he tells her that he bought black culture and with enough money, he can be black. I'm going to tell you why he felt this way and felt so entitled to say this. So he bought a one of a kind Wu-Tang Clan album for $2 million and said that he wouldn't play it for anyone, but would consider playing it for Taylor Swift in return for sexual favors. And I got that from time. So I was like, oh my God. And that kind of foreshadows a little bit of how he treats women. We'll get to that. But the the album is called Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. And it's the one-of-a-kind Wu-Tang Clan album. And it was produced by the Dutch-Moroccan music producer Silver Rings. He said it will be the first and last time. And this was like when they, I guess they played it first before they sold it. But he said it will be the first and last time any music from this work of art will be heard by anyone else. In doing the announcement, we reclaimed the idea that recorded music should be regarded as a work of art. They said that Martin was really the only one who respected this idea and the art behind it. So, like, the whole concept was that we record music and then everyone can have it. It's kind of like an NFT, almost how, like, there's, like, the one piece of art and, like, you have the original art and how how people collect art and stuff. So they were like, there's this one album, we're only making it once, it goes to the one person that wants to collect it and then they can do whatever they want with it, but... It's their piece of art now. So anyways, Martin buys it. And he even comes out and he's like, I'm not the biggest Wu-Tang Clan fan in the world. He's like, I like them. I couldn't tell you every single song. I couldn't tell you every single song lyric, but I like them and I respect them for what they are. And he gets it. And on his live chats, he's an asshole with it. He drops it on the ground and it's like gold plated. It's like super fancy looking. He thinks he broke it, like, multiple times. He used it as a coaster. And the Wu-Tang Clan, they were like, we don't care because he bought it. Like, yeah, he's being a fucking asshole about it, but he bought it. It's his. And that was the whole point of the art was for someone to have it. And, of course, like, as an artist, you probably want someone to, like, take care of it and cherish it and appreciate it for what it is. But also, that's their art. 
I can buy the Mona Lisa and do whatever the fuck I want with it. I don't know. There's probably laws about that, I feel like. So then sparks this other issue. There's this whole argument between Ghostface Killa of the Wu-Tang Clan and Martin Online. So there was some interview and Ghostface called him a shithead because he was doing all this stuff on live. Everyone's seeing it. Everyone's like, yo, Wu-Tang Clan, like, are y'all really gonna let him do this type shit? And so of course he's like, yeah, you're a shithead. But like, it's your art, but you're a shithead. So he says that online. And then Martin makes a video clapping back. And there's like some dudes in the background wearing like, balaclavas and snapbacks like trying to look all hard and he's like nobody messes with me blah 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 and silver rings is like don't challenge the clan like they have goons like that like do not fuck with them type shit and some lawyers and um publicists and journalists and all that they were like this could literally be a crime like he was essentially threatening him martin was threatening ghostface in his videos and everyone was like you need to chill out like you're taking this shit too far But Martin is just an asshole. He just loves the attention. Like, he literally does not give a fuck. Someone actually asked Martin how the album was in an interview, and he said, It's 100% none of your business. In an interview with Vice, Martin did play a little bit of the album. In an interview with The Breakfast Club, he told this story about a high school friend who introduced him to Wu-Tang Clan, and he introduced his friend to Nirvana, blah, 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 blah. On this episode of The Breakfast Club, Like, they're obviously, like, on edge already, like, having fucking Martin Shkreli come on, and so they're, like, giving him shit, basically, and you can just tell how bad he wants street cred. It's, like, so cringe, but, like, I mean, I get it. He's, like, dude, I'm not privileged. Like, I grew up this way with janitor parents, four kids in a two-bedroom. Like, I actually do listen to the music. I'm not the hardest out there, but whatever, whatever, and it's just, it was interesting to see the way that he interacted with different people. Absolutely. Like, he'd be on these, He'd be on all these, like, big-time news shows with, like, white interview hosts just talking shit, giving them shit, like, yeah, Martin Shkreli, I do what I want type shit. But with, like, black people, he's, like, suddenly so, like, poised and, like, has a, a method to the way that he wants to talk to them. And with women, we'll see he treats them like absolute garbage, like the shit on the bottom of his shoe. So he's really quite the character. Like, I don't know... I was, I really wanted to try to get an understanding of him and see like all the different sides of him because obviously there are so many based on all the content that's out there about him. I think overall he's just a dick. I'm not going to say he's not a dick. He is. But we don't cancel people here. We hope that they can grow and learn and change. And I'm hoping that he grows and learns and changes while he serves the time that he deserves to spend in prison because he does deserve to be there for the things that he's done. So... (laughs) that was kind of funny that I went on that little rant because now we're going to talk about Milo Yiannopoulos. And if you know who that is, wowie. Milo is a British far-right, alt-right, and I'm going to put quotes around activist. He has made comments about supporting pedophilia, but then has recanted, claiming that he only said those things to cope with being abused as a young boy, being 13 and in like a, a relationship type situation with a grown man, which is very much grooming and not okay. So, I mean, I don't know enough about this guy to make any um, statements about him, I guess. But he's definitely very controversial. He's also associated with neo-Nazism, so, like, that's obviously not good. And I didn't dive too much into this because I think I want to do an episode on him because there is so much to unpack with this dude. He's crazy. So I think I'm going to do an episode on him. I don't have anything in common with him when it comes to his beliefs. 
<laughs> I'm not a Nazi and I don't think pedophilia is cool. So let me just get that out there. But it was interesting to learn about this guy a little bit. So I definitely think we're going to do an episode on him because he has lived quite the controversial life within the media. So yeah, in the movie, the documentary thing, this guy is like spray tanned and has like the Donald Trump hair going on. It's super weird. He's wearing, like, an all-white suit. Like, he looks very fabulous, if you will. And so he's just another person who's very much quite the character. He held an art show in New York City, and it's, like, about Trump and making America great again and creating a space where people can say what they want to say and make the politically incorrect jokes that they want to say, yada, yada, yada. Basically, he created a safe space for people to be bigots. He said something about, like, Daddy Trump would save them from this plain world that we are creating, like, this politically correct world. Uh, it's so frustrating when people have, they latch onto opinions that are, like, valid. I mean, all opinions, I guess, are technically valid. But, like, this idea that, like, you know, we are in a very politically correct world, and I do try to be politically correct, but I think that sometimes we do, we do have a lot of censorship and stuff. You can go very extreme one way with that, and you can go very extreme the other way with that. It would have been cool, his art show, like, looking at it, and then it was, like, all this MAGA shit. Like, I am not a Trump fan. Fuck Trump. Sorry if I lose listeners, but yeah. So this was, like, very interesting, and I'd never seen this kind of perspective on it, because whenever, you know, I think of Trump and his supporters, I think of, like, I'm stereotyping, but I think of, like, camo and, like, American flags and yeehaw and guns and shit. This was in New York City, and Martin was there to support these conservatives and their overwhelmingly liberal New York City. That's what he said. And it's not like what you're envisioning, like I said, like all the stuff. It's very like bougie. It's like Vogue. I don't know. It was just the weirdest thing ever. There was like bloody photo shoots. There was a big bathtub like filled with blood and this guy's in it and he's like slapping blood on the walls and like all over these like newspaper articles and stuff. And there's like heroin chic models in MAGA shit. Very, very white supremacy elitist vibes. Scary um, American Horror Story-esque is how I would describe it. It's like, I'm intrigued by it. Like, I would literally just want to be a fly on the wall to see that event, but I would never want to be there as, like, a participator. Martin was a contributing artist to this art show. His art piece was just a framed pill with a price tag. He said that it represents the purity and pricelessness of life. At the end of the day, we all want to be healthy. We all want to be successful and happy. Dude! Dude, like, such a fucking dick. I can't. He's like, let me just put this pill right here with this price tag. Like, ugh, literally villain type shit. Milo says, it's not always clear what Martin is advocating for, but it is clear about what he does not like, and that's a problem. And I'll give him that. I was like, okay, you have a point. Like, as an activist, like, I guess you at least know, like, what you're going for. Like I said, I didn't do a ton of research into, like, all the other stuff that he does. This was my first time ever, like, hearing about him. Um, maybe I'm, like, living under a rock. Like, it seems like I am every time I do research for my episodes. So I'm not r totally clear on what this guy is trying to tout about all the time, but I thought that was an interesting point. Like, what is Martin advocating for? And we don't know, but we do know what he fucking doesn't like. Which is important. You gotta know yourself. Martin, moving on from that, that was a weird bit of this research. Martin started buying the domain names of specific reporters that were harassed, or he thinks they were harassing him. They were just basically being assholes to him on the internet and posting articles. 
I think there was this one that a reporter did and it was like he had gotten a girlfriend and the name of her article was like, wow, like some women actually like Martin Shkreli <laughs> or something like that. And he had bought her domain name. He did this for anyone who wrote a critical article about him. Very spiteful. He's looking for revenge. He's like, oh, you don't like me? Let me take this down. But then he goes on the internet and like says whatever the fuck he wants. So it's definitely a double standard. He goes after women specifically and he said, when they go low, I go lower. Speaking of tearing women down, he specifically targeted Lauren Duca, and this was a whole fiasco on Twitter. Lauren worked as a columnist at Teen Vogue and was known for her column Thigh-High Politics, which I haven't read, but I love the name. She's now a freelance journalist. According to The Guardian, this is a quote, Duca has been under fire, and this was a 2017 article, So, Duca has been under fire from Trump supporters since early December of 2016, when an opinion piece she wrote for Teen Vogue that was critical of the president-elect went viral. In the piece titled, Donald Trump is Gaslighting America, Duca said, The incoming president was attempting to weaken and blind the American electorate with his interchanging of facts and opinions, his self-contradictions, and his undermining of the press. As a candidate, Trump's gaslighting was manipulative. As president-elect, it is a deliberate attempt to destabilize journalism as a check on the power of government. Damn right, sister. Fuck yeah. I sounded fabulous when I said that. (laughs) Love that for me. Anyway, so she wrote this piece, which I agree with, and Martin DM'd her asking her to be his plus one to the, quote, inaug of Trump because he's, like, really cool. You know, like, I'm just going to the inaug casually. I believe she said that they had never met either, so he just, like, DM'd her on Twitter. She posted the conversation, like, a screenshot of it, and she didn't even respond. It was just a screenshot of his request on her Twitter, and she said that she would rather eat her own organs. And then he started going back and forth with her, blah, 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 blah. He's obviously upset, so he makes this, like, whole weird internet obsession about her, about him and her being in love. He turned his Twitter into essentially, like, a shrine for her because she denied his invitation. He photoshopped all of these photos of like her and her husband and like put his head on her husband and it was just really really weird and he just kept harassing her he even like jokingly said in one of his live videos he was like oh like haha i think i threatened her with rape so yeah that says a lot about him fuck him that's gross his followers were harassing her too saying like not nicely that she should fuck him and like all this really gross inappropriate stuff like it went very gross very very quick and she screenshotted it and like sent it to the guy who runs twitter i can't remember his name right now i think he starts with a j and she was like what the fuck like how is this allowed and he ended up getting permanently banned from twitter for this and this was like a really heartbreaking thing for him because he was like all up on Twitter all the time. That's why I said he kind of reminds me of Donald Trump. And apparently like he's a Trump supporter. So when I started this research and I started seeing all this about him being crazy on the internet, I was like, oh, he reminds me of Trump. And then I found out that he was a Trump supporter and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That checks out. So this was like really upsetting for him to not be able to be an asshole on the internet. On December 16th, 2015, He gets arrested for charges completely unrelated to the price gouging of Dara Prim because remember, I told you guys that's not illegal in the fucking beautiful land of the free. Whatever. He gets arrested for all of that Ponzi scheme shit that I was telling you about. So that all comes back to bite him in the ass pretty quickly too. If you look at the timeline, we're talking about like, I think it said 2011, he'd started up Retrofin. So all of this is happening very quickly, particularly for white collar crime. 
Martin posted bail of $5 million cash. And then he was on his live videos as he does. I'm like, where's your lawyer telling you not to do this? Someone called him on his live and he answered explaining how the arrest process went. They were like, oh my God, you got arrested. Like, why are you out right now? And he's like, well, you dumbass. Like I posted a bail and it's sitting in an account and blah, 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 blah. And there was like a bunch of background noise on the call and he fucking goes off. He's like, how dare you call me and ask me a question? You're being disrespectful. Give me your full attention. Like if I called you, I would want your full attention and just starts going the fuck off. And I was like, Jesus. And then he goes on live to say that his attorneys told him that I guess it became apparent that he was being investigated. So he knew that this was a possibility that he could get arrested. His attorneys told him that the police would like give him a quote warning prior to his arrest. And I guess that this is like a thing with like nonviolent crimes and stuff like that, where maybe they'll be like, okay, if you just come forward now, the process will be a lot smoother. You'll get like a lighter sentencing type shit. Sounds very like white people things to me. He was all, like, upset on his live. He's like, what happened to my warning? But there's a video of him on live, and he gets a call that starts, hello, yes, this is special agent. And then he hangs up. And I'm like, dude, I'm pretty sure that was your warning. And, like, they pointed out in the documentary, and I was like, oh, my God, he's such a dumbass. (laughs) Like, he's really, really smart and really, really dumb. Like me! Federal prosecutors charged Martin with securities fraud. He was charged with taking stock from his former company, Retrofin, to pay off unrelated business dealings. Retrofin ousted him and investigated and sued Shkreli for corrupt trading practices and alleged fake consulting deals with investors who lost money on Retrofin. According to Wired.com, Shkreli was essentially accused of a Ponzi scheme that involved misleading investors at the financial firms MSMB Capital and MSMB Healthcare and using money from his pharmaceutical firm Retrofin to pay off investors and cover other debts. So he's just funneling money. I think they explained it in the documentary, like, if you rob a bank and then you rob another bank to pay back the first bank, you still robbed the first bank, even if you gave the money back. So it's still a crime. Prosecutors said Martin cheated investors out of $11 million in a Ponzi scheme, and if convicted, he could spend up to 20 years in prison. And people were so excited that he was arrested, even though it was unrelated to the Darprim, because people hated him for the Darprim. People hated him because he was an asshole. He got arrested for something else. Everyone loved that. And I think people got a little bit confused about why he was going to jail later on, because it was almost like a past life, his hedge fund stuff, because then he just made the switch into the pharmaceutical world. He didn't have a PR person. He definitely should have, because he goes on all these interviews, like I said, and just makes an asshole of himself. In one interview, you might start to sympathize with him. In the Vice one, in the Breakfast Club one, I was like, wow, he seems kind of like a normal person. Like, those were the first things that I watched because I just thought they were interesting. And I was like, wow, like, even though he did raise the price on the pill so much for some people, like, he's taking the money and he's going to do research, blah, 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 blah. He seems like a he's just taking advantage of the capitalist society that we live in. And he's going to give the people the free medicine. But then I started seeing all these live videos and, like, the Twitter stuff. And I was like, holy shit, it's like two different people And it's, like, seriously really eerie. But what I do want to point out about this is that, aside from his personality, the stuff that he was doing in the pharmaceutical world was actually very common practice for the pharmaceutical world. And that was a point that a lot of people were making when this came out. Because he's just the face of it, where, like, in the past, if this happened to another company, there would be a PR person, there would be lawyers, and they'd be like, don't talk to anyone, don't say anything. And it would just be like a faceless CEO. But Martin is like loving the spotlight, putting himself out there and being a beautiful target for people to hate. 
it almost happened like for a reason so that hopefully we can see this and be like, this is fucked up. We have to change. I mean, it's been five years since he was arrested, so not much progress has been made in that realm. But like it, it, it does bring up conversations that I think need to be had. Benjamin Braffman, a prominent American criminal defense attorney and founder of the Manhattan-based firm Braffman and Associates PC, was Martin's lawyer. Braffman has defended P. Diddy for illegal weapons and bribery charges, Harvey Weinstein for sexual abuse charges, Martin Walmark of the Epstein Walmart gang, an outfit that had plotted the kidnap and torture of Jewish husbands to coerce them into granting their wives divorces, gets, I guess that's the religious divorce, so granting their wives gets, as well as other high-profile defendants, including celebrities, accused mafia members, and political figures, according to Wikipedia. So he's a very high-profile lawyer. Martin was charged with the following eight counts. Conspiracy to commit securities fraud. Conspiracy to commit wire fraud in connection with MSMB Capital. Securities fraud in connection with MSMB Capital. Conspiracy to commit securities fraud in connection with MSMB Healthcare. Conspiracy to commit wire fraud in connection with MSMB Healthcare. Securities fraud in connection with MSMB Healthcare. Conspiracy to commit wire fraud in connection with Retrofin, and conspiracy to commit securities fraud in connection with Retrofin. Wow, that was a mouthful. A lot of people think that he is either autistic or a sociopath based on all these multiple personalities. I don't like using that term. I'm going to take that back. I didn't say multiple personalities. I think when you say that, people immediately start, you know, forming biases and stuff in their head. Just all these different parts of himself that he's showing to people and the way that He's interacting with people on the internet and in these interviews and the things that he does and says. People are like hypothesizing that he was autistic or a sociopath. And in preparation for his trial, his lawyer actually did have him evaluated by leading experts. And they said that if he if he was properly diagnosed as a child, he likely would have been diagnosed as autistic. But I don't think we have like an actual diagnosis. Jury selection took a long time. By day three, they still didn't even have anyone selected. I have some quotes that were from the documentary of things that people said from the trial or like people who were excused from the trial as jurors. This is what they said about him. I'm aware of the defendant and I hate him. No, 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 no. When I walked in here today, I looked at him and that's a snake. Not knowing who he was, I just walked in and looked right at him and that's a snake. Who's like which grandma (laughs) was on the jury? And then this person said, You'd have to convince me that he was innocent rather than guilty. And the last one I have for you today is he disrespected the Wu-Tang Clan. The Wu-Tang Clan situation got him a lot of visibility. And I can understand why. Because, like, if you don't even know what's going on with Martin Shkreli and then you see this weird man who bought the Wu-Tang Clan album causing a ruckus on the internet. Like, the Wu-Tang Clan has, like, some committed fucking listeners and fans, so he definitely caused a splash there, even completely unrelated to everything else that he was doing. People were very confused about who he was, what he did, why he was being arrested. Some people even thought that he was the person who raised the price of the EpiPen. EpiPen? (laughs) The EpiPen? And that's just an example of how corporate CEOs can hide, but Martin chose not to. Like, who? I don't even know who raised the price of the EpiPen. Do you? Me either. But I also don't know a lot of things. That's why I have this podcast, so I can learn them. 
Martin was ultimately found guilty for three of the eight charges. No one really thought that he would go to jail because white-collar crime, you'd get... A lot of people have gone to jail for white-collar crime, but you can get your lawyers to help you just, like, pay a big fee or, like, go only for a little bit of time or, like, in this situation, he was only found guilty of three of the eight counts, so that significantly lowered it. So there's a lot of things that play into the sentencing. No one really thought that he would go to jail, and then if he did, they thought it would be just for, like, a couple of weeks. Anyways, he was released before his sentencing, and it was not long before he fucked up and found himself in prison. So, while awaiting his sentencing, Martin was taken in front of the court for offering $5,000 for a strand of Hillary Clinton's hair, and the court interpreted this as a physical threat. However, his argument back to them was that this was just political satire. I'm like, dude, it's too far. Like, just reel it back in for a minute. If that's what he thinks political satire is, it's all, it's all clicking now. It's clicking, Stephen. I love you, Stephen. Martin was sentenced to seven years in prison with mental health counseling during the probationary period to follow. So yes, I agree. I think he needs some mental health counseling. I hope that goes well for him because I hope that he can like change. I think at the beginning of the documentary, it was like all the people in the courtroom and they were like, why can't you just change and be better? Like you could be an example for people, which I don't, I think it's a little too far gone now. I don't know. Maybe he's got it. Maybe he's got a chance, but like he was being very smug in the courtroom is why they were saying that to him. But yeah, so seven years in prison, mental health counseling during the probationary period. He has to forfeit approximately $7.4 million in assets, or he did, including the Wu-Tang album. And in the fall of 2021, a digital art and cryptocurrency company bought the Wu-Tang album for $4 million. So I was right about the like NFT kind of vibe. Yeah, I'm smart. Martin is in the general population of the prison, which is not normal for regular white-collar criminals, which I'm like, good for him. Good for him. Let's see if he runs his mouth some more. (laughs) I don't condone violence or anything like that. I just think it'll be like a shock to his system to be like, listen, dude, you're gonna act all hard and crazy? Like, we'll put you with people that are hard and crazy and see how you feel. He's scheduled to be released in 2023, so right around the corner. So as of January 2022, let's talk about like Martin today. And this is all from the New York Times. Martin Shkreli is barred from the drug industry in order to repay $64.6 million. So Judge Denise L. Cody of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York ruled that Mr. Shkreli had tried to maintain a monopoly over Daraprim through anti-competitive tactics. Yay! The lawsuit had been brought by the Federal Trade Commission and the Attorneys General of seven states, including New York. So this is like really good because the the initial, just the price gouging of the stuff isn't technically illegal. I mentioned early on, other companies were wanting to try to get Daraprim and make generic versions of it, like the the recipe or the, <laughs> that's not the right word. <laughs> But they wanted samples of Daraprim so that they could make generic versions of it, so they could make cheaper versions of it. And he was, like, not letting people have it. He was being very, like, cagey with it. And I was like, that has to be, like, a monopoly. And I'm right. So the judge found that Mr. Shkreli had violated state and federal antitrust laws and that his former company, Turing, now known as Viera Pharmaceuticals, had brought in $64.6 million in excess profits from its sales of Daraprim because of that conduct. Like, craziness. I don't know if he ever even actually tried to use that for the research for the life-threatening diseases and rare diseases he talked about. I hope so. 
The court found that under Mr. Screlly's control, Viera had changed the way the drug was distributed and impeded competition in the generic market. Consumers were harmed by higher prices and fewer options for the drug, forcing many patients and physicians to make difficult and risky decisions for the treatment of life-threatening diseases according to the New York Attorney General's office. And so in 2020, the Food and Drug Administration approved the first generic version of Daraprim. So that's really, really good news. I mean, this drug has been out on the market for over 50 years, like I mentioned earlier. And I can't imagine what it was like for these people that they were having their medicine every day. And then all of a sudden, they just can't get it. Like, it's really heartbreaking. I put like two little bullet points of random things from the documentary that I just thought were funny. So there was a musical that was made about this and it was called Pharma Bro and it was just them like making fun of him and playing collections of his outward personas. And then this guy, you have to watch the documentary. I mean, it's not the best thing ever. It's definitely more entertaining than anything like because you it's more about Martin and like his crazy antics and it is about like the Ponzi schemes and all that stuff, which is super interesting. I didn't get into SEC documents this time. Anyways, you have to watch it because Billy the Fridge is his friend who's like a rapper from Seattle and he's amazing. Like I fucking love him. I went and <laughs> I went and like listened to his music on Spotify, but he said, and I quote, "America loves shit bags. They love it on their conditions. They liked to be stroked before they're fucked." Martin just went in bare balls. And he's wearing like a really big like donut cinnamon roll chain. And he claims to be the Marilyn Monroe of fat dudes, a 500-pound rapper and sex symbol. Go check it out. It's like the icing on the cake of this whole shitty story. I fucking love him. In conclusion, Daraprim is still $750 a pill, and there remains no national pharmaceutical price gouging or drug transparency law in the U.S. And I know price gouging, there is some laws because I learned about it in school, but I don't remember. And weird-ass twist, Christy Smith was one of the first reporters to break news on his case. She fell in love with him, and he fell in love with her too. And she's the only woman that he has ever introduced to his parents, and they're, like, together. And she goes to see him at jail. I don't remember where she was working, but she doesn't work there anymore because I guess that's, like, conflict of interest, whatever. So she's, like, with this man. And I'm like, you, like, wrote all these articles and, like, researched him, like, heckling this woman on the internet and, like, I don't know. I guess everyone's worthy of love, but it's just so hard for me to, like, personally see past harassment rape claims. Should I trigger warning when I say that word? Like, let me know what you guys think. I've heard some podcasts say trigger warning the R word. I just have been saying it, so I just want to make all my listeners comfortable. All I do know is that he is 100% a dick. I hope that he can change and be a better person learn from his mistakes Um, It was an interesting story to research. I'm just really sorry for all the patients that have to pay $750 a pill for Daraprim. All right. I think that wraps it up for today. With that, I would just like to thank you all for listening. I appreciate you all so very much. I literally love you guys so much. This is my dream. I would love to be a podcaster full time. You guys are in the beginning of it, like helping me make it happen. So I can't thank you enough. Don't forget to follow us at Profskep Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. That's at P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P Podcast. You can email me at professionalskepticismpodcast at gmail.com. And I will see you guys next week. Stay sus, skeptics. Bye.